0: Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Rational in Portland. Today on the show I have Ben West. Ben is a sitting city councilor for Wilsonville but he is running for county commissioner in Clackamas County. So this is a very special episode of Rational Portland. Why? Because it is not about Multnomah County. It's not about Portland today. This episode is about all of our refugees who have fled and gone to Clackamas County and for our Clackamas County listeners and we're promoting him. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be frank about this. We're going to, we're promoting him because I'm a big fan and he's become like one of my new best friends. Ben, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: Tell us a little bit about you and your story. How many generations has your family lived in uh in Portland because you're from Portland right?
1: I grew up in North Portland. I grew up in the same home my father grew up in. I had his same childhood bedroom Um, Over in uh, the Overlook neighborhood, not far from Overlook Park, off of Interstate. I used to take the number five to the 33 to go to school every single day. Um, That school district was the Jefferson High School School District. And my family's been here for six generations. Uh, We farmed in Silverton, Mount Angel area. My mom's side is all southern Roseburg. Um, And then my grandparents um, uh, moved their families here to the Portland area. So I grew up in North Portland.
0: When did you move out of Portland?
1: In 2014, uh, my husband and I um, moved moved with our son, Jaquan, to Wilsonville. And why did we do that? We did that really – one of the big drivers was the schools. And – Um, We had some community of friends that lived out in Wilsonville. They had been kind of uh, recruiting us to say, hey, come to Wilsonville. It's great here. The schools are good here. And we travel with these people and our kids hang out together. And we had a community. So after we had ended up selling our house in the Kenton neighborhood, Uh, we did that we uh, we ended up moving to Wilsonville and it was a fantastic move for our family into a fantastic school district and our son Jake Juan is thriving um, in the Wilsonville Westland school district and we've been really happy to put our roots um, down in Clackamas County
0: and you said you and your husband now you and your husband led the plaintiff's litigation in regard to gay marriage is that right
1: Yeah, uh, it was uh, Rummel versus Kitzhaber, and so in 2014, it it wasn't legal for our family to exist, and we couldn't get married, Uh, and so we didn't feel like that that was right. We felt like under the eyes of the law, our family should be legally protected, and so we sued in federal court. Um, And we overturned Oregon's ban on same-sex marriage. It was defined in our constitution and still is actually in the Oregon constitution that marriage is defined between one man, one woman. Um, We believe that uh, our son also had a dog in the fight to know that his dads were married and that there is value in that and under the eyes of the law and through the law that our family should be legally recognized. So we um, got engaged and we led that fight and we overturned Oregon's ban on same-sex marriage. We were able to make some history in Oregon and so now all loving couples like ours, um, even those with or without kids, but we have to have a son that we adopted, uh, can marry and their families are legally recognized now.
0: Tell tell me about your adoption story with your son.
1: Uh, So... When I met Paul, I was always like, we we were both like, you know, he's getting serious, like any other couple. And we were like, do you wanna have kids? Like, it was almost like a prerequisite for both of us. Like, we both wanted to be dads. Didn't know it was in the card for us, like, culturally um, and growing up in our um, more conservative backgrounds, like, having children wasn't necessarily something we always thought about as being a real reality for us, right? As gay men, especially in that time. Um, But when we were meeting and dating, we talked about those types of things. And so we wanted to be dads. And so, Um, When we got together, been together for a little while, we didn't quite know how to go about that. We looked at things like a lot of couples look at surrogacy, um, adoption, um, all kinds of different things. And so we ended up uh, saying, hey, there's a lot of kids in Oregon that don't have families in foster care. And so how can we help some of these kids out? So we became therapeutic foster parents. And those are foster parents that take on kids that often can't maintain in a standard foster home because their trauma and needs are so great um, that they need a extra care. And so we decided to take on those kids. We jumped in with two feet, had a lot of kids come in and out of our homes. Um, but when Jay Kwan come, came to stay with us, uh, we fell in love and we weren't going to let this one, um, get lost in the system and have a pathway to the penal system or be a statistic. We fell in love with Jay. He already had had a failed adoption where he was returned and they kept his little brother um and there's you know a lot of trauma there that happened with jay he was gorked out on psychotropic medications um a lot but we just muscled it out we just created a family right and we were doing the work and so when we were adopting jay that's also when we became marriage plaintiffs and we're like well we're doing this because we're doing the work we're a family and we should be legally protected and recognized and if we're doing this work and helping these children out and helping jay out and he is helping us by being our child because I mean, we all needed each other, it turns out. Um, we want to make sure that Jay's forever family was legally protected. And so all was kind of intertwined. So we overturned ban the ban on um, same-sex marriage and won that in federal court. Like a week or two later, our adoption finalized. And it was like a two-year process. And so now Jay is you know, playing football for the number one football team in the state. They, are, they had a playoff game last night. He plays. He wants to play Division One football. Um, so he went from Oregon's broken foster care system to now good grades, thriving, happy, 16-year-old boy that's um working hard to go to college to play football and now he's a success story not a statistic and um he's the love of my life i couldn't imagine not being his dad um and uh we're really happy that we were able to help create a community and a family culture that allowed him to thrive to do that but um you know he 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 had, like, we think 13 siblings. The number's a little vague. Some of them born born drug-affected. Some of them aren't alive today because of drug abuse. All of them, most of them aging out of the system. Um, And Jay's going to be a success because uh, community family matters, and um, we were able to bring that kind of structure to his life in Clackamas County. Um, I I think he's pretty amazing, and I'm lucky to get to be his dad. That's an
0: incredible story. That must have been a really adrenaline packed um what did you say the time span was like two months or something two years two Two year process yeah that must have been an adrenaline packed two years
1: well i can tell you like when we decided to adopt him so he was a foster child in our home all kinds of behavioral psych issues trauma issues and every parent's almost been there i can guarantee it where your kid is not going to go to bed and they're like fraying your last nerve and they're climbing up the ceiling walls or they're all, it's all chaotic and you know Jay was having some issues going on some behavioral things and I don't know finally maybe it was like 11.30 or 12 at night we finally get him down he's finally done being difficult in that evening and as parents you know it's like you just flop on the couch and you're just like spent yeah. and we just you need
0: some real housewives
1: so yeah, we just, we're just like <laughs> I need something mind numbing to do right now but we just we just we were sitting there and Paul and I were like on the other end of the couch and we just kind of leaned over and looked at him and we were like we were just like we're totally going to adopt him, aren't we? Like, this this has to, This the buck stops here. This kid gets a home and we're, we're his parents. And Paul and I just knew, like, this labor of love was going to be meaningful and lasting, and um, we wanted to be his parents. And so I can remember that even when we got to tell Jay that we got to be his dads. So um, we knew for a little while before Jay did that the state was going to allow us to adopt him or it was progressing that way, and you have to go through some certain hoops before you tell the child. And so... Um, an Overlook Park, if anybody knows Portland, there's this huge, massive, ancient elm tree with its boughs that almost touch the ground. And so close to that is the play area with the Maracle Round. Um, and I would go there as a kid, and I can't go there now because it's full of needles and human feces and homeless people, but I would go there as a kid, and we could still go there back then when Jay was little. Um, and we, were, we we took him to the park, and we laid out the picnic. Paul had the whole picnic thing, and we had the blanket out, and Jay was running around and playing on the miracle Round and being a kid. Um, and so we were he he comes back and he comes and we're under the boughs of this tree and he comes back to us and he's having a good time and I, I look at him and I go, Hey, Jaquan, I, I know who your forever family's gonna be. And his eyes light up like Christmas because he'd always say to us, "Is like, why does anybody want me? Why doesn't my mom want me? Why don't I have a home? When am I am I ever going to have my own home? You know, because he had been moved around between so many homes the first part of his life. Like seven or eight homes just m- bounced around and couldn't put, and a lot of people couldn't handle some of the issues he was struggling with. And so, Jaquan, I know who your forever family is going to be. And he lights up, right, like excited, like um, like it's something he'd been waiting to hear forever. And he goes, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And I go, well, are you are ready to know? And he goes, yes. Tell me, tell me. And I go, I said, he would call Paul Papa and call me dad. Um, And he goes, he goes, I said, Papa and I are going to be your forever family. And he, and he lunges onto my lap. I'm sitting on kind of, kind of uh, down on the blanket and he lunges on my lap and wraps his arms around my neck and starts like laughing, going, I have a forever family. I have my forever family. And like, I, like, it was like in that moment, that's where I really felt like healing started to happen in his little life because Family matters. Right. And not everybody's family looks the same. And sometimes we have to have a community to help love us to get us out of our trauma. And I um, am honored to have been able to provide that. But what people always say to me is like, oh, my God, you're so he's so lucky to have you. But I needed him just as much. Like I never knew I could do this. Like he has challenged me as a man to be better. Because um, I've had to be his dad, and I've had to, I had to get my own stuff in order too to be better at being his dad. Um, and at, one of the parents have that same story about how their children help make them better people at the same time, and that's family. And sometimes it looks a little different, but and sometimes we have to make our own family. Um, and I, uh, but we've done that, right? And so he has. He's kind of like I said, the joy of my my world and everything. And so um, that's where it all started. And uh, now he is. You know, this big sixteen year old normal adolescent kid. <laughs> and <laughs> so
0: Jay's black, right? So he's you have black. a biracial family. Yeah,
1: two dads and a black and a black son.
0: Two yeah. white dads and a black son. Yep. And so I mean, what is that like? What is that like raising a black son in Oregon in one of the whitest states in the country? you're coming from Portland, the mm-hmm. whitest big city in the country.
1: Yeah. Um In our family, we uh, really focus on people's character, and um, I teach, we teach our son that your immutable traits don't matter, and your story didn't end as a foster care child. That wasn't the end of your story, right? And you have the opportunity in this country to do the right things, make good decisions, and to carve your own path and be whatever you want to be. And so I tell my son that his story is just beginning and that if he wants to play Division One football, if he wants to go to college, if he wants to have a certain career and a certain pathway, that those opportunities are available to him and nobody can take that from him. And All too often in our culture, we we define people and put them in their boxes based on immutable traits. You have to think a certain way if you look a certain way. We have like a melanin meter where, like, depending on the color of your skin, like you get to use that to dictate certain things. And I've just never found um, that that ever moved the needle for progress in my own son' life or as a gay man who has. I have my own stories of bad things that have happened to me or being bullied or things like that. But bad people will always exist. Hateful people will always be around us. And jerks will always say dumb things, right? But I'm really thankful to be able to live in a place where I can be the maker of my own destiny and my trauma and what people have done to me don't have to define ever who I am or determine how I think critically or the path that I need to go on. And so we tend to look at like, that tends to be more of the worldview of our family, excuse me that tends to be the worldview of our family much more than ever talking about race if you think of it this way much of the narrative that happens in the portland area would be so damaging to our father-son relationship if i had to always put it through the lens of color i'm privileged i'm better than you society gives me more you're black you're oppressed you have it harder That is not how we relate as father and son. I love you. I don't care about any of those immutable things. They're irrelevant. I want to raise you to be a good man of character. And I want to teach you that um, you can overcome all of this. And I wanna help you get there. And I know through accountability, through love, through structure, through family, you can do those things. And so it's just a different worldview than what we so much have pushed upon us that tends to just define everything and put everybody in a box through an immutable trait. And we, I just refuse to let that be my worldview or to infuse that into my son, because he's not a victim, not once in this story, did his horrible circumstance dictate his success where he is at today? My son um, is, that's just part of his story. It's not who his story, it's not what his story is.
0: Well, you won me over. So, Ben, how did you get into politics?
1: Well, I, I had parents that made sure I was always civically engaged and, mind, and civically minded, right? My parents are pretty civically engaged and follow that kind of stuff all going to my household. But... I don't think I really got involved until I was a marriage plaintiff, right? Like, I saw that I took action in something that was meaningful for me and my family, and I needed that to change, and I had to advocate for my family, and we were able to make history and do that and overturn Oregon's ban on same-sex marriage, but... Um, most people would automatically assume, oh, well, if he supports same-sex marriage, especially back in 2014, he must be like wildly progressive and just kind of like another person that fits within a community as you would stereotype that person to believe or think. And that's just not it. I'm a little bit... Um, my own independent spirit. I think I'm more of a classic liberal. I think I'm somebody that saw an injustice and wanted to make it right. Um, and I'm not afraid to speak my mind. And I saw that I was successful in that avenue and wanted to find other ways to better Oregon. I saw some of the early chronic issues that we are dealing with today because of the political status quo already starting to sneak up its ugly head back in 2014, 2012, right? And we're just seeing-
0: what, Like what?
1: So you saw some of the, like we talked about Metro, some of the overreach with Metro regarding housing policy and land use policy and causing the increase of house the, cause, the housing costs for everybody in the in the city. You start to see even some of the homelessness issues start to really start to creep up at that time and be permissive towards allowing people to live in camp and camp in tent cities. We already started to see, um, uh, you know, just... Uh, uh, kind of an advancement of a of a really extreme progressive ideology it didn't happen in a vacuum it didn't happen overnight it was permissive and and slowly began more and more and more advancement and so i started to see that then and those aren't my values um and so i'm not afraid to stand up against um a majority when they're wrong in my opinion, still valid, even if you don't agree with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I kind of started to jump in and trying to get involved. And then um, where I've really found my niche that I care about is local government. People don't quite understand how school board races and city council races and, you know, like Renee Gonzalez going against Joanne Hardesty, those local races, county commissioners in the metro area are incredibly important, powerful races that shape policy that impact your everyday life much more than some of the screaming, scary rhetoric that we hear about or even what's happening nationally. The government closest to you impacts your life the most the government closest to you is the one that you have to deal with every single day anywhere from the potholes to the street corners to the sidewalks to land use policy um, uh, to public health is disseminated and how we deal with mental health drug addiction um, homelessness a lot of that those dollars come through the county level Um, natural resources some like Clackamas County manages a lot of its own forest so those natural resources and forest fires and things like that so that's all That's all local politics. Right. And so um, understanding like I could be really most I could use my skill set to be most impactful to my neighbor's lives in that local government. And I'm running in a nonpartisan seat in a nonpartisan way was where I kind of found my niche.
0: Is Metro nonpartisan?
1: It's supposed to be. Okay. M- Metro is an incredibly unique layer of government. So, yes, it is. So, Tell us about that. Well, well I like to consider, this is what I think of Metro is, it's like um, our very own European Union in Portland. Right. Like it's this governing body that it's
0: so much worse, though. Yeah, And it
1: has this mission. Yeah. <laughs> it all started off with like, let's take care of the tri-county garbage and the recycling and maybe we'll run a zoo. And then it's just now mission creeped into all these aspects and it has taxing authority so we can raise your property taxes. So often in Clackamas County, we'll vote down this big tax. But because we're part of Metro and Multnomah County has the voting power, we get to have our property taxes increased to pay for some of Portland's problems. So it is this very large, powerful, bureaucratic, inefficient layer of government. And in, through most of the country, the counties handle that level and metro doesn't exist, right? I, We might be, if one of, or there might be one other um, uh, layer like government in some of some the place in the country. But, I've never heard of but it. But it's primarily like we just created this extra layer of bureaucratic governmental authority. Um, And so I think it's really been part of the problem about like um, it's been highly inefficient. It's wildly expensive. They tend to push urban planning really, really far left progressive urban planning. Um, Clackamas County tends to always get the table scraps because they always cater to Portland, Multnomah County and and Washington County. So it's made up of three counties, right? Washington. uh, Multnomah and Clackamas County that's the tri-county area that's the three counties that make up the greater Portland area um, and so that's that's I, you know and I really believe in local control like I said our local governments know how to make take care of their neighbor's needs the most and I feel like in Clackamas County as a county commissioner it's my job to make sure that I represent Clackamas County that if necessary I push back against metro and make sure that uh, we're not being taken advantage of that my neighbor's needs are being met and that locally we're trying to solve those issues the best that our local community you just know how to care for one another.
0: And then how did you decide, I'm going to run for city council?
1: Like I said, I felt like it was, I got asked a bunch. <laughs> to, Hey, would you do this? And so I just started to get engaged on local issues. And Wilsonville is a unique little city. It's the last suburb as you leave the metro area going down I-5 south. And we always punch above our weight. So we're a population of like 27,000. Um, and we a little bit punch above our weight. We have a freeway that splits our city in two. We have our own state-of-the-art water treatment plant. We're right on the, the edge of the urban growth boundary. Um, we uh, have been innovated in many ways on how we have developed at our communities. And so when it comes to like big local issues, working with metro, working with um, the counties, um, we are really in the mix in those conversations on local issues because of just where we see, sit geographically, all these other things that impact that region. Um, and so, I've also, when you run for county commissioner, it's super similar in what you deal with um, at, on a local government city level, but now you're just doing it at a larger scale as a county level.
0: Yeah, because Clackamas County is big,
1: it's huge. So, west facing Mount Hood, so that's like um, government camp. It goes all the way west, just a little bit past Wilsonville. And then it drops all the way south past um, Malala. And it almost latitudinally, like, is just west of Salem. But it goes those, those those lands go all the way to Warm Springs and border Warm Springs and that forest land there. So it's a massive county by, not, not just by population, because that's 420,000 plus people, but it's also um, uh, just geographically a big, a, a lot of square mileage
0: tell me about your campaign messaging what is the reason that people should vote for you for a Clackamas County Commissioner well
1: I, I think um, uh, I, I think the message is clear and if you're not on message right now then you then then you should question if, this, if, if any politician running locally right now is not running on this message, then they're, they're, they're missing on solving the issues that we care about. So there's a couple things that I care about where I think I'm different than my opponent. One of the main things is, is that, um, and, and this is more towards Clackamas County right now, but it's coming to the Portland area too, is tolling. So tolling um, I-5 um, over there by Wilsonville and 205 through Wilsonville um, is wildly expensive. ODOT has said in multiple meetings that it can cost as much as $240 per car in every household just to drive on the freeways and highways that my grandparents already paid for. No promise of increased capacity or no new lanes. It is um, a move, when you distill this, this policy down, it is a move by Portland politicians um, who, who and environmental activists to force people out of their cars. And they do something called congestion pricing. So if you drive as a single mom trying to get to work, you're going to get hit with a toll. Um, And if you come home from work because of higher congestion, you're going to get hit toll hit with a toll again. Um, But it has something that they're talking about potentially implementing is um, man is uh, management pricing. But if you drive an electric vehicle, the government likes you. If you drive a Tesla, If you drive an EV, you don't necessarily have to get hit with the toll, but if you're a mom in a minivan picking up their kid from school or a guy in his pickup truck trying to get to a job, you know, working family, you get hit with the toll. It's very, very regressive. The initiating all of this on the backs of Clackamas County is incredibly um, harmful. Um, It's a giant boondoggle. Um, We have a community just outside Wilsonville called Charbonneau, and those people live just on the other side of the Willamette River down there, and they have to cross over that river and that bridge to be able to get to the grocery store. Well, they wanna put the toll right on the other side of the bridge. So if you live in Charbonneau, just to go to the grocery store as a senior citizen on a fixed income, you get to get hit with the toll. These, um, uh, there is, and there's just apps and and it would cause diversion of a mass amount. So all these little county roads that come off the freeway they would go into pure gridlock and these suburban communities would go in gridlock because everybody would divert off the highways to try to avoid these expensive tolls. My family alone, a working family, I work as a nurse at OHSU, we haven't talked about that, but I'm a cardiology nurse and I work in transplant. Um, We did the math on our family and it would cost us over $500 a month just to drive on these highways that I would have to drive on because I don't have another option as a working family. Um, This is, and and so in 2021, in the legislature, um, House Bill 3055 was passed. Um, and it was passed by Democrats, most of them progressive, many in Portland pushing this, and this tolling scheme uh, with Metro is definitely behind this, right? And so uh, that m- my opponent um, in an emergency transportation meeting, because they wanted the support of the county commissioners, they held an emergency transportation meeting on May. 10th, 2021 in Clackamas County for Clackamas County to get to support House Bill 3055. Page 58 talks about it being implementation of tolling. It was the framework and the impetus of tolling. It was it was put tolling in statute. And so uh, it is it for me, no matter what else was in that bill, that would have been a poison pill. And I would never have supported any any bill, any measure from the legislature that would have told Clackamas County. It is wildly unpopular, Um, it is wildly damaging to the livability in Clackamas County. And um, my opponent, she'll say all the time, even in the meeting, she'll talk about how she hates tolling and doesn't like tolling, but she also knew that tolling was in the bill and she still voted for the bill. And so nobody cares about your rhetoric Nobody cares about your your, your statement of like, I want to vote for something and then put a statement in the record that like I didn't like this aspect of the of, of the um, bill. You voted for the bill that put tolling on your community. And I think we're tired of disingenuous politicians that just say a bunch of stuff we want to hear. And if you're not closely paying attention to these big bills with all kinds of stuff in them, you find out they voted for the very thing they told you they would never vote for and never support, right? And so sometimes. This happens all the time in politics. Sometimes, you know, you might like 90% of what's in a bill, but you know that 10% is a poison pill and that you can't you can't support it. And you may take political arrows for that, but you got to have a spine. You got to have a backbone and you have to be af- not afraid to stand up and be in vanguard for the things that matter and the neighbors that you represent. And all too often um, we see less and less of that in Salem, less and less of that in, on county level and, and, throughout, and throughout our government. And so I'm holding her accountable for that vote. Um, she, you know, will say on our website, she will say and scream out loud, I don't support tolling. Um, but when we needed her to stand up and say no against this regressive tax on working families, it was polit- local politicians like me, it was Republican candidates, that said, no, that hurts single moms. No, that hurts the small business owner. You're lying when you say you care about these people because you're the ones that pass tolling. Nobody cares about you screaming about abortion every second when they're paying five, $700 a month just to get to work. And they're already paying $6 a gallon for gas. And someone's taking a shit at their business that they have to walk into on the front door. And there's fentanyl that's rainbow colored impacting their children. If you cared about people's lives, if you cared about their livability, you wouldn't pass these hyper-progressive um, urban planning think tank bad ideas on working families' lives. And so it's just disingenuous. We have to remember why we're going to the ballot box and why we're going and why we're angry and what caused us to have these conversations. Um, my opponent, uh, support, she, she she says she fully supports police. I'm endorsed by the um, Clackamas County Peace Officers Association. That's the big union for the men and women law enforcement in Clackamas County. Um, and usually the incumbent would get that endorsement pretty solidly, right? And so why have they come in with, for me at, at record financial support for, from that organization and being emphatic about why they don't want Sonia? Why is that? Because she did vote to support funding in the police levy. That's true. She did do that. Well, during 2020, her Twitter was full of anti-police rhetoric. We can remember 2020. Like, we all lived through that. Um, Her Facebook was full of this anti-police sentiment defunding police. And then she partnered with Reimagine Oregon. She was the only county commissioner in March of 2021 to not vote to divest and disassociate from Reimagine Oregon. Well, what's so big about Reimagine Oregon? Well, she'll say it's for maternal health for people of color. Bullshit. It's not about that. What it was about was look at their policy platform. It was about divesting $50 million from Multnomah County Police, $2 million from Clackamas County, getting rid of the gang task force, um, uh, no school resource officers. Um, and that's who she was partnering with, a radical defund the police Um Uh, organization and she doubled down on that in this campaign right so like who is she associated with who are her bedfellows right and so I think it's important to like look at this because a lot of politicians are speaking out of both sides of their mouth they got the forked silver tongue but we are not stupid and we're paying attention and more and more people are waking up scales are falling off their eyes and they're saying nope I'm not I don't feel safe in my community and why is that why does it take over 20 minutes for law enforcement to respond to your house when your life, your property is threatened now. Why do they say they fund police now? Because they know it's politically advantageous. But why, don't, why does nobody want to be a police officer? What is the culture that we've created? It's a culture of lawlessness. It's a culture that doesn't respect the rule of law. It's a culture that hurts black and brown communities the most because crimes predominantly happen in those communities and they just can't flee to the suburbs and go to Wilsonville. They can't go to Westland. They don't have those resources. They get to hide behind their couches. Bullets whiz through their windows, or their windows or their cars are bashed in, or catalytic converters are stolen, or you know the kids are traumatized, and then they have to go to failing schools. This is not a partisan issue. This is bad government not doing its job, and it's time for voters to hold those people accountable. And as a nurse, I'm running because my my graduate level work is in um. Uh, is in health policy. You have
0: a master's. I have a
1: master's in nursing and health policy, and so I I am kind of a nerd. I like to get involved in policy work. We've done a lot of policy work for foster care kids in Salem during the sessions. We have an organization called Oregon Foster Families First that advocates to help kids in care, and so um, as a nurse, like how can I intersect my public service with nursing and solve some chronic issues, um, and so. Uh, public health dollars disseminate down from a county level, right? And so mental health, drug addiction, uh, these people I've cared for at the bedside in the community. I think I have a unique skill set and a lens as a nurse on how to solve these issues in an evidence-based way um, and how to, like, hold uh, government accountable and not just throw money at something without ever seeing good outcomes. Like, we have to be honest about, like, fine, good, more funding, but what are our outcomes? Um, And being very evidence-based in our approach. And I want to take this... Um, nursing lens of caring for people's human dignity making sure that we address those human needs um, while also though understanding that rule of law accountability and these other things matter too Um, and so I think that I bring a unique skill set that's not common in um, public service or in local government as a nurse and somebody trained in health policy work Um, and so that's that's kind of I'm excited about doing that I can't do that on a city level Um, but my opponent you know, she's voted against veterans housing because she had, she, um, she didn't want to vote for shelters. She was, she didn't vote against it. She was very opposed to veterans shelters. Um, she had very much this very housing first mentality instead of solving drug addiction, mental health issues. You just put them in a house and give them a house and you pay for the house. And then what, what happens is, no, we just don't see it, but they're behind closed doors, still living in addiction, still living in dysfunction, and you're throwing a lot of money at something without actually you're solving root issues. And so that, that's the housing first poly that we've seen in Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco. It's not working. It's not the right model. Um, and so when we've had times to have like um, low barrier shelters or um, high barrier shelters or mental health hospitals established and built in Clackamas County, which Governor Brown blocked. Um, Tell me about that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, uh, so Universal Health Systems um, in Clackamas County in Wilsonville was going to build a $243 million private investment hospital with over 100 beds and an emergency room specializing in mental health breaks and issues and suicides. They also would be one of the only hospitals that would take TRICARE for veterans with mental health issues, um, and they would also have some specialty with working with teens that would have some mental health issues. Um, hundreds of li- living wage jobs in Clackamas County, and um, what happened was is uh, it, the governor would not issue what's called a needs certificate. Now, when you build a new hospital, you have to have, by state law, you have to have a need certificate issued to say, the proof that you have this need for this facility. I think it's common sense. We all know there's a need for it. Like, but why didn't they issue the need certificate? What does that mean, Ben? What that means is, is that OHSU, I think it's Kaiser and Legacy, they created Unity, the Unity program in Portland, um, Mental Health Services, and they and their unions wanted to protect the um, Their asset and their services that they could provide, and it's money-driven, and so they didn't want to have competition. And Unity was getting bad outcomes. They couldn't keep nurses. It wasn't safe. Um, They were gobbling up tens of millions of dollars, not having good outcomes. And Universal Health System says, well, we can build this hospital, no taxpayer money, just let us start it. And Wilsonville City Council and the mayor at that time, we were all for it. We were like, yes, we need this yes we have a long history in wilsonville of supporting mental health services yes we're behind you 100 percent as a local government our community is behind you well years and years of fighting in the legislature fighting democrats fighting you know failed state representatives like rob noss and um in special interest groups and governor brown and tina Kotek. that hospital um just decided they cannot break ground here in the metro area so instead i guess the answer is no need certificate and more lifeless bodies on the street shooting up in front of us.
0: How, how many did you walk past on your way here? Cause when we,
1: it was like an episode of the walking dead.
0: Yes. So we, we parked right outside, I'm pointing outside the, this window. We parked right outside the window. I would say, when you say it, that's like 50 steps, we walked past three unconscious people on the way in here. There
1: was this dude over here on, um, pioneer place. He was just huddled, like um by that starbucks right there and just gyrating and shaking and looking out of his mind and laying on the ground and i'm just like it's heartbreaking right like i make that calm it's inhumane. yeah it's like i mean i can't tell you how many times i've seen these patients come into the hospital they have maggots coming out of them they come in every week we get them stabilized and cleaned up and then we have nowhere to put them and they're just either in the ED room or they're just back on the street. Sometimes they're violent. Nurses don't feel safe. I mean, they're it, I mean dirty filthy wounds. Um uh, I mean d- drug addiction, uh like like uh just out of their mind in psychotic breaks and unable to care for themselves. And to allow people to live in that kind of squalor is um cruel. And uh we have the ability. I think we can rise to the occasion to stem this tide and start to go in a different direction what we are doing is not compassionate and it is morally wrong and as a nurse that's not how we care for people every single person has dignity and worth every human life has value everyone is unique and special in their own right and um we need to value those lives at least as much as we value um uh, I mean, I feel like sometimes we value our, our pets and our dogs more than we do, like, legitimate people that need help. And we just sometimes throw money at the problem, and we keep electing bad leaders who don't ever have a solution, and they're not willing to think outside of their, their outside of the box or look at different where things are being done elsewhere better. You know, the homelessness issue is not unique to Portland, Oregon, or Oregon in general. But one great thing about living in America is, like, we're almost like the petri dish of a democracy, well, what's working in Houston? It's a Democrat city, and their mayor is a Democrat, but they're having way better outcomes than we are. And What, what, what worldview are, is informing how they address this issue? And that's where we have to start when we look at leaders. What is the worldview that is the framework for their action, and then how are they acting out in policy? And is that a worldview that is solving the issue? And sometimes we just get caught up on like buzzwords and buzz issues that have nothing to do with improving the situation that we're in. And it's up to the electorate, it's up to the voter and our system to say, you know what, I'm holding you accountable because you govern at my consent. You represent me. You represent my family. And I am not better off today than I was two or four years ago. And I won't continue to have this in my neighborhood So you get an F on your report card and I'm gonna go look in a different direction because this isn't working anymore and it's my job to hold you accountable. Um, And we've had one party rule. We've had one party in a supermajority making all these decisions. This didn't happen in a vacuum. And so I think it's time to have creative, innovative new leadership um, and bring balance back to the state of Oregon. Uh, and I think we're missing that. We've got, we've gone off the rails a little bit.
0: And are you a sixth generation Portlander? I know you're a Oregonian. Sixth generation Oregonian. Yeah,
1: three or four in Portland or something like that in the family on one of the sides of the family, but all the way, we my family's from all over Oregon.
0: That's amazing. And tell me about your organization, Oregon Foster Families First.
1: So Oregon Foster Families First is inspired because we adopted our son Jay. And it's super little, it's a little nonprofit. Um, it's a little ragtag, but what we do, I mean, we, we create policy and legislation we think improves the lives of children and families and their care and foster care. And we hold bureaucracies and state agencies accountable um, for bad policy. And we try to do it through the legislative process. There's a lot of great organizations that help kids directly and get them codes and education and tutor, all those things are fantastic, but there was no, but they're but they often words of the state it's and those policies impact their lives so once again what skill set do i have to make a difference in my community and so um i was i don't i was a i was working as a nurse on graveyard when we first got this going a few years back and i would be in my scrubs i'd work all night long on the nursing floor and then i would drive over to salem not go to bed right away drive into salem in my scrubs and go from office to office to office throughout the, the House side of representatives. And then I'd walk over to the Senate and then I would try to, you know, talk about legislation, put a lobby on behalf of these kids, just kind of a little grassroots seeing how I would get in front of all these different legislators and build different relationships in Salem. And then I would go to bed, we'll sleep a couple hours. drive all the way back. Yep, sleep a couple hours, work my night shift. Before I go home, stop by do it again during session, and we've seen some movement. We've got some things passed. Not enough. Not everything, right?
0: What What were you able to get done?
1: So we have one. We have one bill that we sponsored that um, makes uh, the state um, track the psychotropic medication foster care kids are on, so we know how things are being prescribed. It, and maybe see some data on overprescription of things like that. One of the ones we've almost gotten passed that we're really proud of, and it will be. It's being. Um, uh, sponsored by Representative Bonham, who is most likely going to win and become a senator now in Clackamas County. What this bill does is, is the our, my, I would consider right now kind of the flagship focus of our organization, and we have some other things. But um, in 2012, the Republicans passed a bill or put forth a bill that said, it was Republicans that said, hey, if you're a kid in foster care, and you age out of the system, um, then you get free in-state tuition because the state's been your parent, and if you qualify for college, and you're already vulnerable, you already have all these strikes against you, and you have difficulty, you can go to any state school, and the tuition's paid for, and the state will pay for it, right? That was a Republican-sponsored bill. Absolutely, yep, absolutely. Republican idea, Republican-sponsored. And so what will happen was is um, it became a, disincent- a disincentivized adoption. So if you adopt a kid... And they're six years old 12 years old or they're a teenager and they want to be adopted and They find a family um, those kids are having to pick between being adopted or losing their in-state tuition because if you get adopted and you don't age out you lose your in-state tuition so kids are having to pick between their forever family or the benefit of actually having in-state tuition and so we've been fighting for this bill to close the loophole that says no we have to promote adoption these kids can't languish in care They can't languish in this system. These kids are always going to be better off, and it's going to be more beneficial for our culture and society if they get adopted and have families. And it's a win-win for the state. We're not having to pay for them when they're um, uh, later down the road. Um, We're getting them stability, and we're making sure their college is funded, right? And these parents can't save for decades or since they're babies because they didn't have them when they were babies. And a number of these kids and very few kids and and a lot of – I don't know, a a number of kids – the number isn't huge of kids in foster care that qualify to go to college, right? Um, and 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 are aging out of the system. But what we wanted to do is close that loophole and say, nope. If you adopt this child and they've been in the care the system for the, for um, so long, then they still get to keep their in state tuition, um, and get and get to go to a state school for higher education.
0: Why isn't that just flying through?
1: Because of the Senate, guys like Rob Wagner, um, who's the Senate. Um, uh, what
0: is the argument? What is the possible argument against that
1: well in salem if you don't belong to the right team even if you have a good idea if there's no balance they don't have to listen to you we were able to get it through the house twice but i couldn't get it like rob wagner stopped it from getting out of his committee and then the um the lobby for higher education um would bring these wild skewed numbers and say like oh it's going to cost too much we can't afford this or whatever um and we would be like well it's not
0: Oregon's never really cared about cost before
1: well it's also not thousands of kids by our numbers that might be four to five hundred kids in the state right and not all kids are going to go to a four-year school some will go to a trade some won't go to college at all um and so we were like no this is the moral and right thing to do um you have record revenues right now and these kids often we It wasn't that long ago in Oregon, under the Democrat supermajority, progressive majority, um, they were, kids were dying in hotel rooms or being abused in care, or they were, you know, we, Dennis Richardson, the Republican Secretary of State who passed away in office not that long ago, did that landmark audit um, that broke down all of the dysfunction within these kids within the foster care system. Uh, And so there was a lot of buzz and news about that a few years ago. And so we just wanted to help fix that problem as people that were foster parents and adopted a kid from care. And so that's just some, but it's an innovative bill, it's easy, it helps kids, it, it, it promotes adoption, it helps get kids out of care.
0: I was going to say, it's an incentive to adopt yep. through the foster care system. Yep. And those kids that are older than infants have a hell of a time getting adopted.
1: Yep. Yeah, my, my son was labeled as unadoptable. Like, like he, statistically, my kid was never going to be adopted. Um, and, you know, you have kids that finally find somebody that, that's really, that wants to take them in, and they might be 12, 14 years old. And those adolescents need to be able to know that they can have a forever family, that they can be adopted. And we have to start passing innovative policies that promotes that culture, safe, healthy homes, for for as many kids as we can get them in and we need to make it to where it's incentivized so people want to provide those homes and they don't feel adversarial against a system that's broken right like that's to me that's a pro-life issue that's an issue of what what, that we can all agree on that helps change a culture that's broken and pointed in the right direction that brings healthier communities
0: well and when you say that's a pro-life issue of course all the bells start ringing because in Oregon that that's a those are really dirty words um in general and so it's just – it's too bad that the, our culture is such a way that something like that would get shut down.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think – here's the reality about, like, since we brought a pro-life – Isn't it weird? Yeah. Isn't it,
0: I mean, the words pro-life are not in a vacuum. They sound great. When uttered in Oregon. terrifying. Because
1: the, they're politicized and I'm so political, right? Yeah. So political. Um, and I think sometimes when we quiet the noise – and we all sit down at a table and talk about um, different issues that matter to us. There's a lot of common ground, even on that issue. A lot in the well, state of and Oregon. I'm
0: pro-choice, but you know, we, you and I talked on the phone for almost two hours the other day, and I I agreed with every word out of your mouth. I mean, I felt like we were in agreement on literally every issue except that. And even when it got to that, you you said, you know, some of my um, really good friends have have been through experiences where they ended up choosing abortion. I don't think any, any less of them, and yeah. they're still my friends today. And
1: yeah, I think I think that um, the human experience can get super complicated really quick, and um, I don't think we operate with enough grace with each other. And people have to go through really difficult situations at different times. And I think that we need to be very careful how quick we are to judge. We need to make sure that we're a community of support and love and care and that we wrap our arms around people and that we have a culture that supports people that are in that really difficult situation. And they may not have all the information they need. They may be desperate in that situation. Um, But all too often, we are ready to judge and throw stones at people. Um, And I've had that done in my own life and nobody likes that. And I think we can come to terms about like where we're at in Oregon and how we compare to the rest of the world and the rest of Western civilization on this issue. Um, the Oregon is the most extreme state um, on abortion policy in the union. It is codified in statute. It's heavily protected and it's popular. And so. Um, well,
0: it's even popular in Kansas. Yeah. I mean, it's popular in places you wouldn't think it was popular. yes. Yeah. I think um, it's well supported. Yeah, it's well, I think, I think it's popular pretty much throughout the United States. I think what we disagree on, um, I mean, unless you're definitely staunchly pro-life, I think generally we're, we're, if you, if you're okay with pro-choice, I think where people have a disagreement is sort of where, where to draw the line. And I think that that's talk about complicated.
1: Yeah. 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 And
0: of course in Oregon, we don't, don't draw a line at all. And that's why I think it's so interesting that Christine Drazen is fine with running for governor here and saying, hey, I understand that you've got this uh, abortion law that you love, and I'm not going to touch it. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think she really can. remarkable.
1: She really can't.
0: Well, uh, yeah. To give everybody, like we talked about in our ballot episode, a sixth grade civics lesson, given the Democratic supermajority in the legislature and the way that abortion is so heavily protected via the legislature, the way our system works, this is not a monarchy. <laughs> it's not a dictatorship. Yeah. It's, the legislature checks the executive.
1: Yeah, and, and here's the truth. On the, on the priority of issues that she has to deal with in Oregon, I, I don't think it's on the list. Like,
0: Well, and you know her.
1: I know well. her very well. Yep. I'm endorsed by, I'm endorsed by Drazen and I'm also endorsed by Betsy Johnson. I have great relationships with both of them because that's how you get things done. As you build relationships with people, different viewpoints, you have long form conversations that are respectful. Like we're having now, you're not listening to some wild political ad and making your decision based on that or getting into your ideological corners and not budging. Um, I, you know, I I think that Drake, and I also know Drazen personally, how she's than for my family, like my child knows them. And um, my, my husband, Paul, who's a Democrat, like we live a little bit in a mixed marriage <laughs> politically, <laughs> um, you know, like we, we, um, but like, but like, I know Drazen's a really good person. I know she's very smart and competent. And uh, there were times behind the scenes where I would be engaged with legislation or just engaged politically with different personalities within the Republican party, even the Democrat party and um she would go to her caucus and just say hey i have been here we like to maybe recruit him to run for um the legislature you guys all know him and uh because through relationship and not just talking to people through ideological talking points or bumper stickers um that relationship was built and they were like we love ben like we we would think he'd be a great asset if he ever ran for the legislature and our caucus should support him and we want to serve with him we don't him being gay is a footnote. He's done all these other great things, right? It's just one facet. And we can have a conversation with him and it's respectful. And and, um, uh, she always had my back too as like somebody that didn't always fit within um, the Republican Party. Or um, I also don't always fit everywhere in the Democrat Party. I'm a little bit of my um, anti-authoritarian, beat to my own drum kind of person. I'm a little bit uh, an outlier in general or a unicorn. Um, And so, but she always was respectful. um, And... I think that she would be a competent, good, stable leader. Like if, and that's anecdotal, right? But uh, I. Well, it's
0: based on your personal relationship. It's based on a
1: personal relationship, and right. Like I, I have. Um, and you've I,
0: also seen her at work. It's not. I don't think it's totally anecdotal. You've seen her work at work as a legislature. I've first seen her hand. work
1: firsthand at the legislature. Yeah, I've seen her work under calm and composed under pressure. Right, and I've learned from her, um, and not always agreed with her, but I had her ear respectfully. I had her ear to have a conversation. Um, not always agreed, and that's okay, right? And because we have to get away from this notion that disagreement equals discrimination. No, it doesn't.
0: Yeah, I just heard Joanne Hardesty called Mingus Maps an asshole in the middle of a city council meeting. That is the height of incivility, and it has rotted this city to the core and, frankly, the metro area generally.
1: You're right. I mean, I've had people... You know who never... I don't this might be too much information, but you know who never attacked me politically and called me a slave owner? Mm. I wasn't Republicans. You know who ever said that I didn't purchase my son for political benefit? Wasn't a Republican. You know who didn't call my son a token child for his dad? It wasn't a Republican, right? Not that both sides have not acted poorly because I can give other instances where um, I haven't. The, the lack of respect was there, but like I said earlier, Shitty people exist all over the place, and they always will. And we'll on con- both sides on of the spectrum. But,
0: but they're usually at the extremes. And, and they're at the extremes. Yeah, unfortunately, this the metro area is seems to be dominated by these extremists.
1: Yep. And I think a lot of normal, hardworking, good people that have to show up at a job and you know get their kids through school and pay the bills, um, the people that really make society work, I think a lot of the people in the Portland area are waking up and being like, no, this, these these core issues that we're all upset about that we all agree on—they got to get fixed. And sometimes that means bringing balance back to Oregon.
0: Is that what you're saying? Abortion probably isn't on Drazen's to-do list.
1: Oh my god, it's just not like abortion. <laughs> literally, we're like it is like Oregon is and will be probably for the rest of my lifetime. Zero like zero restrictions. It will just be like we will be the the abortion spot. I mean, that, I mean, it's, it it is so codified in statute and it even has bipartisan support it like does. It you does. know not everybody on not everybody who's a republican doesn't so wants to get rid of abortion um
0: well yeah we, that's what we learned in Kansas
1: yeah yeah th- same th- thing th- in Kansas yeah and
0: it was polling like they were going to get rid of it and yeah. then they didn't i mean it's yes there are plenty of republicans maybe even a majority that that are pro choice again i think just the question is like where do we draw the line and that's why i think the Federal legislature can't get anything done. I mean, there's the weirdest part is the the Biden administration is they're in power, they have the legislature, and they're all screaming and crying about the Supreme Court decision. And it's like, oh my God, you guys have been in power for so long. If you're so upset, why haven't you done anything about it?
1: And, and Oregon's not becoming Mississippi. No, I'm right. It's just not
0: that did yeah. When when the Dobbs decision came out, we suddenly did not become Mississippi. That's for sure, and
1: we won't. But you know what? You, but you know what? Um, since abortion's not changing, you know what has to be fixed, and you know why we're everybody's screaming abortion. It's like a red herring. It's like, look over here, look over here. I Don't know. pay attention. I, I was like, know. no. I guess what? Like, you can be pro-choice and be even more upset about what's going on with tent cities. You can be pro-choice and be more upset about the lawlessness and your community feeling unsafe well, and that's terrorized. Why, that's how
0: I feel. And we yeah. just did an episode on this. Um, I had two colleagues in here that said the exact same thing. They said this is a trick to change the, to to make you think about something else. To to have you your, it, the inner ideology in you scream out and for your pencil to move towards Tina Kotek, And the fact is, abortion isn't on the to-do list, period, because it's protected by the legislature, and we have it's this- It's codified in statute. Democratic majority. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And we've had that Democratic majority for a very long time. I think the last time we were even was 2010. I don't oh, know. It was,
1: yeah, a little bit. You're right, yeah. Uh, here, but that was even, and it's treating people like they're stupid, right? Like, listen, the emperor has no clothes. Like we talked about this a little bit. We did. We talked about this. And so guy. forever, like everybody, it's and you know, my dad used to read me that story when I was a kid, and this I I, I can still that was see, sweet when yeah. you said that. So yeah, I my dad would read to me before I went to bed, and so we had this um fairy tale kind of storybook, and one of the stories in there was the emperor with no clothes. I can still visually like see in my mind like the illustrative drawings that went along with it. And so, you know, people who know the story, there's a king and everybody wants to placate the king and, you know, he has the power and the authority. And so um, they have this idea that he's going to have the most finest robes ever, you know, and go through this big coronation parade. Um, And as he goes down the parade, he's actually naked. And everybody, you know, doesn't want to rock the boat or they see or are in awe of him. And so they're all just like, oh, doesn't he look amazing? Oh, he's so beautiful. But the reality was, the reality is a little kid pops up and goes i'm totally paraphrasing this whole story a little kid pops up and goes uh he's naked <laughs> right like hello uh his twig and berries are out okay like le- like a lot of homeless people throughout our streets right now right like and so like i think people yeah. i think people are realizing that hey guess what y'all that emperor has no clothes that dog don't hunt like this is not working um and the reality is is that we cannot continue To have a society that perpetuates this type of dysfunction and despair it's not working um and i guarantee you that if you could get a number of us in a room with maybe a couple bottles of wine maybe different varying political progressive moderates even some conservatives we would talk about the issues that matter to our everyday lives the most guess what's not coming up in reality ever once in portland right now in oregon Abortion.
0: Well, abortion's like, not coming it, up. Hold on, it. Yeah. It's way down the list. It is it's way down crime, the list. It's homelessness. Yep. Um. It's school.
1: Yep. Oh, I. You know, tell the suburban mom that she needs to care about like, like you know, uh, abortion. When you locked your kid out of school for two years and they can't read or write, right? Like, yeah, or when you change leads. the graduation standards and basically it's a particip it's a participation certificate, right? And so my son. Um, school's not been the easiest thing for him. It's not his gifting. He was born premature. You know, he had a lot of things that caused it to make school more difficult for him. I won't get into all his history, but it's not easy for special, him. Special, Some special,
0: special needs,
1: not special needs, but like we need to work a little harder. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Right. Like he, we need to, it is, it is uh, the football fields easier for him. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Right. So, uh, and we put, we poured that work in the, he lost two years of high school and it was devastating to his confidence he um, fell behind. We were scrambling and alone. We were told that we couldn't have, and then at the same time going through all this, that we couldn't have Thanksgiving with our loved ones because we're going to kill people. Oh, Kate
0: Brown said after you know after this big defunding campaign where she let Portland burn for 100 plus nights, she said, go ahead and call the police if you see people- On your neighbors.
1: Yeah, go ahead yeah. and call
0: the police on your neighbors if you see people showing up for Thanksgiving. Yeah.
1: So we need the police- to call on your neighbors for Thanksgiving, but we can defund them when they're murdering and drugs and crime or, or rampant if in Portland.
0: Hardesty, you need them for your ride share driver. Or
1: you need them as your ride share driver. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, but people, but like we have to live with these consequences of these bad policies and it's just gross. Oh, teachers get to go ahead of the, get to go to the front of the line, but you, I can't have grandma, I can't get Grandma vaccinated and have Thanksgiving with her because she's not a teacher and she's not part of your special interest group and part of your little your little your little pal group. And so you get to twist the rules for that group. But Grandma's isolated and alone, or I can't go to Grandma's funeral, or you know, it just wasn't evidence based. It was super ugly and dysfunctional. People lived in utter fear, um, and I think that like we have to remember what these people did to us.
0: Yeah, and frankly, I, I feel terrible for a lot of those teachers because their union helped destroy their reputation, and I feel terrible. Or
1: they were stuck in a impossible situation. The the teacher at the, in the classroom, right? I,
0: I was trying to get I was trying to get my head around it because mm-hmm. all I was hearing from all these teachers who were saying, "No, no, no, we want to go back to work," and apparently, what. They were saying is that a lot of these union bosses are they're not in the classroom anymore this is like their entire full-time job and they it's sort of like hive mind like they're not even listening to the people within their union and they've helped destroy the the (sighs) high i would say the the real gravitas that teachers used to have um the the pedestal that they were put on in society certainly in oregon they, they turn parents against them yep. their union did that
1: yeah that's yeah I I agree and here's the truth is that I mean my son's luck I mean we're you know you know my husband has a good job working in the renewable energy sector I, I work as a nurse at OHSU in cardiology and transplant so we have like some resources we're not wealthy but we you know we're not um, you know, you know, there's a lot of families though, where the single mom couldn't even like, and, and they put their I kid know. on zoom and alone.
0: And they had no internet.
1: They had no internet. They had like lack of resources, kid, the suicide rate skyrocketed in young people. Kids the most. You know, these, ki- I mean, it, what you did to it's, it's, it's evil and yeah. it's, it's just pure evil. Like it's just what you did to those children is malicious and evil.
0: The ones they say they care the most about.
1: Right. Or they use as political puns in their little political ads or whatever.
0: Well yeah. Ben, I know you're a busy guy. Where can we find you? What do we do? Can we still donate?
1: Yes, you can donate at um benwestfororegon.com or my main website is benwest22.com. I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can find me um @benfororegon. Um so it's benfororegon and um
0: And your Twitter's blowing up. My
1: Twitter's kind of blowing up right now because we're just talking long time about the issues.
0: Reader on your Twitter and um, <laughs> I was, like, a fan before it was cool to be a fan, so I just want to go on record about that as, as your Twitter continues to blow up.
1: Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, appreciate, I It's a lot of fun. I have some fun with it.
0: You're very good at it. Thank You're you. You're very good at it. And then where do we find the Oregon Foster Families First organization? Can we donate to that?
1: Um, I believe our – yes, you can. Um, and I believe that website is still up at um, oregonfosterfamiliesfirst.com. If not, you can get a hold of me on Twitter or um, – uh, or through my other website, and we'll we'll, we'll make sure that avenue is open, um, and that we're going to become much more active going into the twenty twenty one legislative session in Oregon. So we twenty twenty
0: three twenty twenty one twenty twenty one twenty
1: no, you're, I'm 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 sorry, you're right twenty twenty
0: three. Oh, I was like, Jesus, are we still dealing with twenty twenty one bills?
1: I mean, we are. <laughs> we we are, but twenty twenty three session. Thank you. Yeah,
0: I, I, I know. I was like, I can't. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I Ben, I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming in. And I adore you. And um, that is Ben West for Clackamas County Commissioner. Thanks again, Ben.
1: Thank you for having me.